Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome to episode number 50 of your favorite podcast of all time, Water Cooler Talk. <laughs> to celebrate 50 episodes of the best podcast on the internet, hosted by myself, I brought back a fan favorite and a favorite of myself, Cecil Harris, to talk about the landscape of sports during a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic. Are sports becoming too political? I don't know. I guess you have to listen to find out. In the episode, we discussed the University of Georgia and the return of college football. Since recording this episode, I think they've played three to four games. <laughs> and during that story, Cecil listens through as I share my conspiracy theory. Very interesting. Conspiracy theory about voter suppression in Georgia. Look it up, people. It's happening. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the legal team here, my lawyer, is telling me that I need to say alleged voter suppression. I don't actually have a lawyer, but I'm assuming if I had a lawyer, they would they would not want me to be sued by the state of Georgia on my 50th episode. Not the way to do it. And then our final conversation revolves around the decreasing ratings of the NBA. As of recording this episode, spoiler alert is coming up, LeBron and the Lakers beat Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat to win the championship. But this year's NBA final saw a staggering 10 plus million viewership drop compared to last season's final. In our conversation with Cecil, we discussed some of the reasons why, but as I was editing through the episode and re-listening back to our conversation, another idea struck me, just boom, lightning. And I realized that myself as a millennial and as baby boomers begin to uh, uh, die, die off, I guess, um, not the probably not the correct way of saying that. But as they die off, millennials become that main viewing source of TV. And I, I realized that our viewership habits of sports aren't what normal ratings would conduct themselves on. I know for <laughs> a lot of us, we happen to stream sports games where where someone from a centralized location will take a game and stream it to thousands and thousands of other people to watch for free. And technically, even though thousands of people may be watching that one game, it only counts as one viewer. And additionally, I know for myself, specifically for the NBA or the NFL, games just end up going on and on and on and on and on and on. You know, oh, in the NBA, the last three minutes with timeouts end up being like 50 minutes long. <laughs> I don't always have time to invest in watching a sports game because boom, light bulb, I know specifically with the NBA and the NFL having deals with YouTube TV, literally minutes after the game's over, there's going to be like a 5, 10, 15 minute highlight video, YouTube video of that game. So being a busy beaver, I know that I don't have to set aside two, three, four hours of my schedule. I can watch this 5, 10, 15 minute clip whenever I want. It fits better into my schedule, so I'm watching more highlights than the actual game. Every once in a while, I'll get in a full game there, but uh, don't, don't, don't always have the time. And I know a lot of people like myself feel that same way. And so when we talk about ratings dropping, specifically for the NBA, included with obviously there's more important things going on in the world, all the major sports being played at the same time. Heck, the uh, a Sunday night football game between the Vikings and the Seahawks had double the viewers of the NBA championship clinching game, not only because the Lakers were up big, I think by 25 points at halftime, but at the end of the day, when we come to viewership ratings for sports, football is still king. If you go up against football in prime time, it's it's not looking good for you. So there are valid reasons why the NBA is seeing these rating drops year after year after year outside of being too political. 
Now, I'm not saying people don't believe the NBA is becoming too political, but there is a multitude of reasons why those numbers aren't getting better. And it is, it's up to the NBA to change their model and have a balance between supporting these social causes and having a revenue share that can continue to help the league grow into new markets. As I say in the episode, and I harken back to uh, my first conversation with Cecil from our first episode, uh, The Legacy of Athea Gibson, if you don't like the direction something is going specifically related to television, don't watch. If enough people stop watching, things change. <laughs> to, to paraphrase a bit from the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, viewership alone moves the wheels of television. I should not have to add this, but to be safe, Mussolini was not a good person and I do not support him. 50 episodes. 50 episodes, ladies and gentlemen, and we are quoting a fascist dictator. Fantastic. Love it. <laughs> so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, for the 50th time, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 50 titled Shut Up and Dribble with Cecil Harris. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. And I think that's been the kind of tough thing is like, how do you start keeping in compliance with Title IX? But also female sports don't make as much as male sports do. There are very few um, women's sports programs. I think of women's basketball at Connecticut, not too far from me, or women's basketball at Tennessee when Pat Summit was coach, maybe still, but certainly when she was the coach, they made money. But the vast majority of women's basketball programs don't make money. Mm -hmm. They usually play before very sparse crowds. To see these socially distant crowds now, that's how it is for a lot of college sports. When I went to Fordham, just about all the games except football were like that. You know, social distancing, sit wherever you want and nobody's near you. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a high school football game. But no, I've been, I've been starting to watch uh, some college football games and you know, they'll occasionally cut to the crowds and, you know, half of them aren't wearing masks and, you know, they're all sitting yeah. close. And it's just, I don't know, it, it's, a, it's a tough decision. And I think regardless of the decision that was going to be made, people are going to be angry about it. For many people, it's not enough to stay home and watch the games. They want to be there. And it even extends into tennis. The French Open begins tomorrow. They had a plan in, in Paris to let in up to 10,000 fans per day. But there's been a COVID-19 outbreak in Paris. So they first cut it to 5,000. Now they're saying 1,000. And players are saying 1,000. May as well not let anybody in. <laughs> Look at what the, 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 they just pulled mm -hmm. off the U.S. Open. They did it. They had a U.S. Open with no spectators. And people who were really into tennis, watched on TV. And it has to do, I found out, with the French Open not having the same kind of TV deal. You notice that's the only one of the four majors that does not get ESPN money. You know, the main right holder, rights holder is Tennis Channel, which is owned by Sinclair Media. So to make as much money back as they can, the French Federation, the first one to have, oh, 10,000 people a day. That's not workable. I'll find it very interesting to see, you know, just a few people here and there, a thousand people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, why? <laughs> you know? and yeah, at that point, it's it's just like, all right, it's a thousand people. Does it really make a difference? I mean, it could lead to an outbreak. Um, Mary Carrillo is a prominent tennis broadcaster. She's going to be doing the matches for NBC 
from their studios in Stamford, Connecticut. <laughs> and her partner, John McEnroe, will be at his home in Malibu. Yeah, if the announcers aren't even willing to be there, I mean, maybe maybe you have to have a different kind of conversation. Uh, but Cecil, absolute pleasure to have you back. You know, like I said, our first conversation was so fun. So, of course, I'd uh, have you back again. It's great to be invited back, Adam. Thank you very much. I mean, we've kind of already jumped into it, but let's just jump into our first news story here. This is from CNN Politics, September 16th, 2020. University of Georgia to allow football, but not in-person voting this fall. As the University of Georgia is set to begin their 2020 football season, up to 23,000 fans are expected to attend home games throughout the COVID-shortened season. While students and fans are able to attend home games at the 90,000-plus seat Sanford Stadium, those hoping to vote early on campus to avoid crowded election day polls in Georgia are having a bit more tougher time. A nonpartisan student-led voter registration group, UGA Votes, has hoped that in-person voting could occur at the university's large basketball arena to help mitigate crowded conditions at smaller venues. But according to UGA Votes Executive Director Marshall Burton, the university, which has a $1.7 billion annual budget, did not believe it had the resources to clean the stadium. Juliet Eden, communication director of Fair Fight UGA, stated, From the students' perspective, it's definitely disappointing to see the University of Georgia prioritize football games and just how long and hard they've been working to get those in the works and get to a good point where everyone is comfortable. It's hard to not see them fight just as hard to provide a safe environment for the on-campus early voting. University of Georgia spokesman Greg Trevor responded and pushed back on the comparison between the two, stating, those comparing this matter to a football game should be able to recognize that football games will be played outdoors, but we will still require social distancing by substantially reducing capacity in the stadium. We have eliminated tailgating as well due to a desire to keep the campus as safe as possible and limit visitors during the pandemic. As mentioned, Sanford Stadium, which seats 90,000 plus, will operate at 20% to 25% capacity for all home games, and the school's athletic department has assured significant resources to measures like more COVID testing and improved sanitation procedures heading into the football season. For students voting in the 2020 presidential election, the university says it will provide shuttles to downtown Athens voting locations or recommend students apply for absentee mail-in ballots. In a closing statement on the university's decision, Marshall Burton stated, This is certainly a disappointing decision, but we feel confident that there are alternatives to voting on campus that will be able to supplement this voting location. We are by no means experts when it comes to social distancing or sanitization, so if the university did not believe that they were able to implement those precautions in order to make voting safe for everyone, then ultimately that's the decision they are going to make. So Stacey, I want to ask, you know, do you believe the University of Georgia is just in the decision they made? I don't. I think if you're going to allow a limited number of fans in to watch football, they say 20%, so it's about 18,000 in a 90,000 seat stadium. If you're going to do that, then you can have a voting take place on another part of campus. It should not only be the basketball arena. They have a big library. I do in-person voting in Yonkers, New York, and I go to a local public library. It can be done. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the University of Georgia has a big enough campus library where that could be the on-campus voting site. It shouldn't be, in my view, put in terms of an either or proposition. Yes, oh, that's a very good point. You know, we can't clean the stadium after we have all these people coming in here to vote. Therefore, we won't allow it. But, oh, 18,000 can come here to watch a football game and we'll be able to clean the stadium afterward. 
it doesn't make sense on on its face. I definitely, I definitely very much agree with your point. The one thing that I'm like, all right, this is kind of where maybe the university is heading is football in the southern United States brings in a lot of money. Half of our audience is international domestic. Football in the South, man, that is another beast all within itself. At any level too, you go to high school games and they have as many fans as say a a national football game. I mean, there's a lot of fans that love football in the South. I can kind of understand the university's point on football is more important than these much smaller, smaller programs because they're hoping, I think University of Georgia brought in 30 million of their 1.7 billion from football, from ticket sales. What you would expect is, you know, kind of a trickle down economics. I know that didn't necessarily work when Reagan tried it. Right. But the idea is that, well, you can bring in 30 million for football or some figure like that. And you're hoping that that trickles down to those smaller programs. So I, I can kind of see, you know, the University of Georgia's point here on if we can get football going, Hopefully, we can try to fund these other um, sports, these other programs like UGA votes. But I do think, you know, you brought a good point and states can do this if they can keep clean voting places. So can the University of Georgia that brings in, you know, over a billion dollars a year. I agree. Those are points well taken. I see it as a way to create jobs. You create jobs for people who are cleaning the stadiums. A lot of people have lost their jobs during the pandemic. So you train people on how to properly sanitize facilities, and that becomes their job after the football games, after the early voting days. They clean the facilities. We talk about the, the money. That's a major factor, especially in the southern states. Georgia is in the SEC. They have this lucrative deal with CBS for Game of the Week. They have lucrative deals with ESPN as well. If there's no season, there's no revenue. These coaches get a ton of money. I mean, the highest paid person in the state is usually the the football coach. Mm -hmm. You know, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Tennessee, on and on. So if they're not playing games, they're not making money. And you're quite right. The football program is is the top revenue producer at most schools, in some cases, the only revenue producing sport at the school. So the women can play field hockey, for example, in large part because of the money brought in by football or basketball. So I know they want to do everything they can to play these games, but they're doing it while this global pandemic is still going on and the southern states really have never been able to get it under control <laughs> you know I, I'm, in new yes. york, mm-hmm. I'm in new york where, where it was the epicenter now it's down to less than one percent and our governor um andrew cuomo is writing a book touting his success prematurely but i'm sure <laughs> the offers were you know flooding in and he said i'll, I'll take an offer write a book about how new york flatten the curve, which is not to say it couldn't spike again. But the southern states, Georgia, Tennessee, Louisiana, Texas, on and on, they haven't been able to do that. Florida, but they want to play football. Bottom line, they want the television money. You know, there's an SEC network. If they don't have live football, then they're going into their archives and showing replays that we've been watching for months. You know, the networks want live content and the school's want the money. And you're quite right about these college towns, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or Athens, Georgia. The small businesses in those communities depend on people coming to those games and staying afterward to go to the restaurants, the bars, the shops. And without that revenue, a lot of those businesses 
will go out of business. Even when we're going to talk about kind of the culture impact of sports, but also the economic impacts of sports. Like you're exactly right. A lot of these college towns, you know, I, I was reading some stories about how, you know, a lot of towns in Georgia, they rely on these six home games a year from the University of Georgia because they're bringing in, I mean, 90,000 plus people just in the stadium. And then you have people outside of the stadium. I would say well upwards of 100,000 people are coming in on a Saturday to watch a football game. And then, like you said, they're going to restaurants after they're staying at hotels. They're creating more jobs, you know, kind of the the idea, the quotations on trickle down economics. Right. But like you said at the very beginning, I don't think this needs to be an either or situation. It can be both. Yeah. It's just there has to be a I, this may be going into conspiracy theory territory, but I know Georgia has some issues with voter suppression. There's the reason that fair fight exists, because I can't remember the um, Georgia congresswoman. Uh, Stacey Abrams. Yes. She had her own issues with voter suppression. So there is there there is some semblance of voter suppression in Georgia. I mean, I'm not going to outright say that the University of Georgia is partaking in this, but I don't know if if a lot of things are happening, if it's a... a a chicken clucking, it's a chicken. Or what? what's the saying? It, if, it, if, it, if it quacks like a duck, yes, like a duck, yes, then it's a duck. <laughs> yes. So I'm not outright saying that the University of Georgia is trying to suppress voters, but I'm saying it seems to be a very popular thing in Georgia to suppress voters from the blue side, from Democrats. And we know that more Democrats come out of college. Yeah. And you mentioned fair fight in reading the story that Stacey Abrams founded that group after losing in the governor's race by a very narrow margin in a controversial race against Brian Kemp, the current governor. And what really stands out about Brian Kemp is a negative way, in a negative way is he was the secretary of state. So he was a player and the referee. And he kicked a lot of people off the ballots in Georgia. And that's why it's so controversial that he is now the governor. He did not recuse himself and have somebody else referee the election. He refereed it and he ended up winning it, perhaps in, in quotes. And now voter suppression is still a thing in Georgia. And he's basically, he was, Georgia was one of the first states to basically order people to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Otherwise they would not get unemployment benefits. They're saying, oh, you can't file for unemployment because your company is open again. Your business is open again. And that threatened uh, the, the safety and the health of, of a lot of people. So it's a, it's a very political issue that, you know, goes be, beyond football. And we know the businesses rely on the revenue. They're not going to have 90,000 fans packing Sanford Stadium. They're going to have 18,000. But that's money that these businesses need. They're going to hope that people will stay around for go to bars, restaurants and shops afterward. But is it safe to do so? And there's enormous evidence suggesting that it's not because look at how other countries are viewing America. They don't want us to go into their country unless we <laughs> agree to quarantine for 14 days. I'm yes. thinking of thinking of going to the Australian Open tennis tournament in 2021 because I had a great time in Melbourne in 2018. But if I were to do that now, I'd have to let Australia know and they would tell me, well, you have to quarantine in a hotel room in Australia for 14 days and then I can go out and re-enter society for a two-week tournament. So what would be a two-week trip for me would be a month-long trip. So I, I don't know if I can do that, but that's how other countries perceive America because of our inability to get this virus under any 
anything resembling control. I mean, you bring up a very good point. During this entire time, it's been a very tough conversation on how do we, how are we safe in response to the pandemic, but also how do we help those small businesses that are struggling? Yeah. Because, you know, a small business in Athens, Georgia is going to struggle now that there's not 90,000 people coming on a Saturday. They'll still have some semblance of help from, you know, the 23, the 18 to 23,000, but those businesses are struggling. And I think <laughs> I keep bringing it back to trickle down economics. <laughs> but it sounds so, um, it works so perfectly, but the poor just keep getting poorer and the rich aren't really affected by this. And I think you're seeing that in other countries where they have better wealth equality, where in the US, we don't have great wealth equality. So a lot of these small businesses are suffering while you have businesses like Walmart and, you know, the big boys like Amazon that they're doing better than they were before the pandemic. And I think that's one of the reasons we're doing so bad in our response is because we're trying to balance between being safe, but also, well, we got to help out the poor people because we fucked them over before. That's right. Yeah. We, we can't solve the economic problems without solving the pandemic. The two go hand in hand, but so many politicians are putting business ahead of human lives. And that's, that's, it's tragic. You can't have a business if you don't have (laughs) people alive. Your your potential consumers are dead. They're hooked up in, you know, hospital beds fighting for their lives and not going to be spending any money. And I mean, we can't even get both political parties to agree on extending the payments that they were giving out. There was basically $600 a week. So the, the two sides have not been able to agree since July 31st. And we're now toward the end of September as we have this conversation. So what are those people, what are they doing in August? What have they done in September? I'm here in New York where the governor at least has halted any foreclosures or evictions, but eventually that will run out. Landlords will be saying, well, I haven't been paid rent in months. I need the rent to maintain my building, maintain my lifestyle and feed my family. There are so many issues that are clashing now because of, I'll say, a really a glaring, appalling lack of leadership. Yes, I agree. At the federal level, and it has trickled down to the states. So playing football games, I understand so many people are dependent on that revenue, but it's sort of a quick fix for certain people. It's not a solution to anything. And it can imperil the lives of a lot of these young men who may be asymptomatic, but are walking around with COVID-19 and then they fraternize with other people or with grandparents who are more vulnerable because of their age or pre-existing conditions. It, it's, it's awful. And it continues to be this terrible story that, that plays out. And I've tried to watch a few of the college football games from, from last week. I, I can't enjoy them because it's happening in the backdrop of something so serious that it, it shouldn't be ignored because, hey, football is back. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, we'll talk more a little more about this in our second story, but it is it's harder to watch sports when you know there are more important things going on. That's right. And I do want to get more into this conversation in our second story, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Yeah, there's more important things in the world. And then you go to sports and maybe it's too political for your liking, as you know, this the stats will show. But it is. And it's like, you know, I have less money to spend, so I'm going to spend less money. Maybe I cancel my cable, which everyone should cancel cable, but I'm not paying as much money to, you know, ESPN or or, or I'm not buying merchandising or I'm not buying tickets because I just don't have the money. It, it is. It's a tough decision. I'm glad I'm not a politician. I'm glad, you know, I can have productive and meaningful conversations with people like yourself and discuss these things. Yeah, so so am I. And I'm glad you mentioned cutting the cord. I am so close to cutting cable. Like You got to do it to yourself. Every <laughs> day, another outrage. My, I, I found Premier League soccer a few years ago. 
and NBC has the rights. I think they do a great job. But now they've NBC has created this streaming service called Peacock. You know, they are taking the marquee soccer matches now and putting them on the pay channel. So last week, Manchester United's match was on the, the pay channel. I was looking for it on NBC. Oh, no, you have to order Peacock for $8.99 a month. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, they're, they're hiding all these events now on the pay, pay channels, ESPN+, Plus, Disney+. Plus, all all, the, all these streaming platforms are just turning into cable again. That, that's that's it. You, you're, you're paying a different entity that you didn't have to, to pay before. And I, as it is now, I have a cable package with literally hundreds of channels that I never watch. So I can get the few that I really watch. You know, if we had a la carte pricing, I would only be paying for about 20 channels and said I have more than 300. You know, it's a it's a it's a ripoff. And, and it does tie back into sports in this respect. I mean, the SEC has its own network. Notice how the major conferences have their own networks. Yes. Yeah. The Big Ten here in Minnesota and yeah, ACC, SEC. Texas has their own. Specifically, Texas University has their own network, their own Longhorn network. Exactly. So they want and need uh, fresh programming. People won't want to watch the reruns from, you know, Earl Campbell running the ball for Texas. They don't want to necessarily see that anymore. That was from the 1980s, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's enormous pressure on these conferences to bring back football. And if you can get into this playoff, one of the four teams, that's even more money for your conference and especially for the schools involved. And there's a reason you know, Ohio State was sort of leading the charge. Well, we had to bring football back. They figure they've got the best team in the country. They think they do. So if there's no football, they don't get to prove it. They don't get that revenue. They don't get the exposure. Kids all over the country get to see Ohio say, oh, I'd like to go to that school and they can put Buckeyes on my helmet and treat yes. me like I'm first yes. class. We talked before when the last time you and I talked about the, they tried to trademark the Ohio State <laughs> University, even though there are other schools like the George Washington University. They don't care. They want to trademark that because they see themselves as special. And you're not special if nobody's playing. Yep. And you're not special if no one can see you play. That's right. I would like to welcome back to the show for a second appearance, Cecil Harris. Cecil is a veteran sports journalist and author of four books on sports, including uh, his last book, which we talked a little bit about, Different Strokes, Serena Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution, which debuted earlier this year. Cecil, welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for inviting me back on Serena Williams Day. Today is her 39th birthday. Oh, yes, I heard about Yes. Uh, you know, one of the ideas I did, I do kind of want to talk about because it's been something I've been watching on Netflix. Uh, but one of the ideas we briefly touched about on the previous episode was black role models, specifically black role models in sports. And during the past few months of quarantine, I've had a chance to binge through Last Chance You. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't. Basically, for those who are listening who haven't seen it, but basically it's about uh, mostly about D1 football athletes who had issues at their D1 college and were basically kicked off the team. So Georgia, for those who may not know would be considered a D1 school. Uh, and these kids are looking for another opportunity to play football at that level by spending a year to playing at a community college, working on those issues, whether it be behavioral or academic. And what I'm interested in, in knowing and kind of, I don't know, it just kind of hurts to watch these things because, and maybe you have some insight, but no joke, like 90% of the time, these young black men are told they have a gift and that their gift is what's going to get their family out of hardships. And then they go to a high High school where as long as they're winning, academics don't matter, things they do outside of school don't matter, 
And then they get to college and they struggle academically or, you know, they don't necessarily understand the importance of academics. They become so focused on that one goal of making it to the league, making it to the NFL, that they're playing through injuries, they're playing through concussions. And, you know, when academic advisors, whether that be teachers or or uh, a counselor stress the importance of school, their grades, even showing up to class, it's just, there's just not a connection. And then when you look at the numbers between you know, I think 2% of college athletes make it to the league, make it to the NFL. And it, it, it just hurts to see people with an opportunity to better themselves be chewed up and spit out by coaches and programs that don't necessarily care for them once that jersey comes off. I, I don't I don't even know, know what my question is, but it's just tough to see. And I, how does it get better? I want to say parents and guardians should take a more active role in determining where their young men and women choose to go to school and not necessarily look at the, the football factories, the basketball factories, but take academics more seriously. The stories remind me of what happened at the University of North Carolina years ago, where they were putting the black athletes in sham classes, African-American studies majors. Now, African-American studies is important if you're really serious about teaching it. But they were using that as a cover, taking these young black men who were on the basketball team and the football team and telling them you're African-American studies majors. So you don't really have to go to class. You don't really have to write any papers. You don't really have to take any exams. And we'll, we'll make sure you stay eligible for baseball and football. And a lot of those young men think they're getting over, but they're actually being exploited to the extreme because when their athletic eligibility is up, they're pushed off campus for the next wave of young men. And they don't have an education. They're in their early 20s. They've passed through a university for four years, Mm -hmm. but less than 2% are going to make it to the NFL or the NBA. And maybe they haven't showcased their skills well enough to play pro ball overseas basketball for the most part. So they've been exploited, their eligibility is up, and they don't have any marketable skills. It's a disgrace. And for that reason, the communities, when they say it takes a village, if the young man or young woman has a single parent, then the community, leaders in the community, I think need to take a much more active role in making sure that the right questions are asked before turning their young person over to that university. You remember this case also. This involves a different kind of student, but remember the Northwestern University football players voted to go on strike? Yes, I do remember hearing about that. And one of the issues involved um, the, the quarterback of the team who wanted to major in something academically challenging, but he felt like he could handle it. And his coach said, no, you'll miss too many film sessions. You'll miss too much practice. You don't need to major in that. It's a problem with young people who want to take college seriously and and be true student athletes. But the equation is flipped. The coaches see them as athlete students or just athletes. You're going to make it to the NBA. Don't worry about academics with the one and done rule in college basketball. You only have to be on campus really for the fall semester. That's it. Even if you're if you fail everything or withdraw from everything, you're able to play a freshman season in college basketball. And if you think you're good enough or someone convinces you that you're good enough to go to the NBA, you don't have to be on a college campus ever again. It's exploitive, except for the few who make it work for them. Anthony Davis, one year at Kentucky. Jamal Murray, one year at Kentucky. John Calipari, Kentucky, specializes in getting these blue chippers. And he tells them, well, I'm going to prepare you for the NBA. 
and they don't all make it. Well, yeah, you have people like, you know, LeBron James, who goes directly from high school to the league. LeBron James is another human altogether. But I like what he does in the fact that what he's doing in Akron, Ohio, his hometown and starting schools and saying, hey, there's an importance on education here. And as we talked about in our last conversation, you know, young black men need black male athletes to be role models. And it, I think it's upstanding for someone like, you know, LeBron James to say, hey, Going to the NBA, playing in front of all these people, it's awesome, but you need to have a understanding of what the education system can do for you. You There's everything that says, you know, a young black man with a college education is going to get out of that previous situation he is in and have a better life. And it, it's like you said, it takes a village because it takes these communities not saying, hey, the only way you're going to save us is by making it to the NFL. So like there was one kid I was watching, he had like three or four concussions in the season. And then later in the show that he's talking about like how he's having trouble remembering things. And a lot of these kids that are, like we said, less than 2% make it to the league. A lot of these kids that are bouncing back that have issues, guess what those 2% don't have? They don't have issues. I mean, unless you're really good, you, you might have some issues, but they're going to classes. They're at least showing up to classes. And they're obviously another different breed on the football field. And you're trying to say, well, here I am at a small town community college in the middle of nowhere. I came and show up to class. You know, I, I do think there has to be some personal responsibility as well, but there has to also be a different, a different um, path taught rather than the only way you're going to save your family is if you put your body on the line and try to make it to the NFL, the NBA. Yeah, there has to be a better way. And I would love to see the colleges, the conferences say, if you're a scholarship athlete, instead of four years of eligibility and then you're gone, give them at least six years where they can earn a degree. That's a good point. You know, they, their football eligibility may be up, but they can still complete their studies and still earn a degree and have marketable skills. But what happens now, these kids are pushed off campus because there's a new wave coming every year. Uh, the colleges have a responsibility to truly educate. And the North Carolina story particularly bothered me because you had these athletes listed as African-American studies majors or and sham courses, non-existent courses, and academics on campus played along. The chairman of the academic studies program, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he went along with it. He knew it was a sham that all these football players, basketball players, track and field athletes, for the most part, black men who were masquerading as college students and ac African-American studies majors were not learning anything. And what was he getting to go along with it? And why was it worth it to him to take it? What you know, Academic integrity just went right out the window. And we, we know about North Carolina. I don't believe for a second that that's the only school that has done it. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, no, you've, I mean, you talk about like, or you hear the stories about like recruiting when the U was the U of Miami right. and just those recruiting stories and what those people had to go through and farm as far as like easy A classes or just easy classes where you just have to show up. But like we've talked about in that first story, those deans and those directors and uh, uh, athletic directors, they're saying, well, we can bring in better kids, say, hey, you don't need to worry about school. Just win us football games. We make more money from that. And you're just, you know, I mean, thank you for letting me vent on this, but you're basically just it's a meat grinder. You know, you're putting these kids through the meat grinder. You don't care about them as individuals outside of your own school. And it it, it doesn't help, you know, specifically young black men 
improve themselves in life. No, it doesn't. And the people perceive the NCAA as running college sports, but the NCAA doesn't have enough of a budget to really investigate these things or really come down hard on any of these individual schools or conferences that may be doing something uh, unethical, if not illegal. The NCA doesn't have the power to do anything about it. It's really up to the schools and the conferences to police themselves. And that's not really working out too well. <laughs> no. uh, listeners, if you'd like to connect and be more informed about Cecil, you can do so by heading to his website at www.cecilharrisbooks.com. Once again, that's www.cecilharrisbooks.com or by following him on the old Twitter machine at Cecil H. Author. You can also enjoy our first conversation in which we discussed Athea Gibson and the U.S. women's soccer fight for pay equality. Uh, we did end up having an update to those who listened to the first version of the episode. So there is an update to that story because like literally the day after that was released, they had an update. But as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Com. Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are in a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in to help spread their message to your own personal audience. Cecil, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Services for the Underserved. Do you mind explaining a bit about what they do and the impact they have in the community? Well, they help people like my younger brother, Chris, who was born normal or as normal as I am, depending on whether you think I'm normal or not. But Chris <laughs> was the type, he's my younger brother by three years. If you gave him crayons in a coloring book, he would start eating the crayons. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the home I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York, the crib was next to the wall and he would bang the wall and paint chips would fall into the crib. And this was before my parents or society in general knew about the horrors of lead-based paint. So my brother Chris would eat the paint chips and it caused irreversible brain damage. So he's um, mentally disabled and also legally blind and lives in a residence run by Services for the Underserved, a, a New York State-run agency. They have residential homes, group homes all around the state. And he lives in one. And they're always subject to budget cuts. I mentioned New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo because he became something of a national hero during the pandemic with his daily media briefings, which were far better than anything that came out of the White House. <laughs> and he showed empathy and compassion and knowledge. But at the same time, he's under a lot of pressure to balance a budget. So social services and agencies like services for the underserved, uh, the budgets are cut every year. So I implore people to make donations because they do great work helping uh, people like my brother, and also people who become homeless through no fault of their own. Um, and an, an inordinate number of military veterans, people, yes. men and women who put their lives on the line for our country, they come home and they become homeless. And, you know, they, they may be sleeping under a bridge or they form their own tent cities. They're all homeless after defending our country in war. Services for the underserved also finds housing for veterans. So they, they do outstanding work. And I, I hope people will donate and sus.org. They can go to the website first and, and read on their own about everything they do. And, and hopefully they will make a donation. No, I, I very much appreciate you sharing that story about your brother and, and bringing them on the podcast. I think 
that is one of the things that you kind of forget about in this pandemic is there are a lot of people that first off were affected by budget cuts just in normal times. But now as budgets become more and more constricted, there are people that are greatly impacted. Yeah, by it. it affects families when we hear about more than 200,000 people have died of from COVID-19. That's 200,000 families. And you can extend that co-workers, friends, neighbors who knew each person. We've all been affected greatly. So many jobs have been lost. When the government talked about the PPP payments to small businesses, then we find out oh, the Los Angeles Lakers got $9 million. You know, friends of Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, got money. Ruth Chris Steakhouse got money. But the local restaurants around the country didn't get money. So many real mom and pop businesses, businesses that are really the backbone of our economy, those small businesses, so many of them didn't get money or didn't get enough to stay afloat. So these are challenging times for everybody. And a lot of people just don't like they say they don't have the money, mm-hmm. but what little you have, if if you would really consider donating it to organizations that are doing the right thing and really helping people, not giving more to the 1%, please help help those who are less fortunate. Uh, well, all right. Uh, Cecil, are you ready to jump into our final story of the episode? Yes, I am. This is from Forbes Editor Pick. NBA playoff ratings slip as fans grumble that the league has become too political. Some basketball fans are souring on the NBA support of teams and players bringing politics onto the court, tossing an assist to President Donald Trump in his attacks on the league. In a tweet from September 1st, President Trump stated, People are tired of watching the highly political NBA. Basketball ratings are way down. <laughs> And they won't be coming back. I hope football and baseball are watching and learning because the same thing will happen to them. Stand tall for our country and our flag. And, well, according to a new Harris poll, a market research and consulting firm, the data backs Trump's critique. 39% of sports fans say they are watching fewer games because of politics. Nearly 2,000 individuals were surveyed and given 10 options to choose from on why they were watching less basketball. Alongside the top choice of too political, the next highest options of the survey reported being boring without fans at 28%, an association with China at 19%. While 39% of sports fans say they are watching fewer games, 32% answered they were consuming more basketball over the summer, and 28% reported watching the same amount. NBA ratings have been down through the first rounds of the playoffs, a 27% drop from the previous season, according to Nielsen, and an overall 40% drop from two seasons ago, which has been an extension of the declining ratings prior to the NBA hiatus in March due to COVID-19. John Grissima, Harris Poll CEO, stated, While the data shows that the league's political leanings will undoubtedly cause some not to watch, the NBA is balancing the issues of racial injustice, supporting its players, and completing a successful season. The basketball bubble has kept the league immune from infection, but not immune from the impact politics have on ratings and public sentiment. I want to jump right into it, Cecil. Have modern sports become too political? I don't believe they have. I believe sports have always been political. Athletes have more of a voice now. I mean, I'm sure athletes in the 1950s were outraged about what happened to Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy in Mississippi who was accused of whistling at a white woman, who decades later admitted she lied, by the way. But in 1955, she said it happened. And a posse, basically a, a, a gang, basically went to the home where Till was staying with relatives, dragged him out of the house, killed him, dumped him in the river. 1955, that happened. I'm sure athletes, particularly black athletes, were outraged, but they didn't have the form. They didn't have the voice. They would have been putting their careers, if not their lives on the line, if they had spoken out about 
the lynching of Emmett Till. But in 2020, when unfortunately these things keep happening, you and I talked about the last time we had a conversation, the only thing that has changed are the names. Well, George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, which is back in the news because none of the police officers who shot her were indicted. Wanton endangerment was charged. That means basically shooting recklessly into other buildings in the apartment complex, but not the six bullets that killed her. The, the wall got hurt, and that's what we're focusing on for some reason. The, the wall, not the woman's body. She was asleep by by all accounts. And the, the no-knock warrant that the police got under specious circumstances, there's so much wrong with that particular case. But athletes today have a forum to speak out about those things. And it's interesting that how, how sports shut down completely a few weeks ago, starting with the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA refusing to play their game against the Orlando Magic in response to um, another act of violence. Kenosha, Wisconsin, Jacob Blake shot in the back seven times. Yes, he, he may be paralyzed for the rest of his life, but shot in the back seven times in front of his three children as he was trying to get into his SUV. And that's on video. People who have wanted to see it as gruesome as it is, have seen it. It's outrageous. It's obscene. And the Milwaukee Bucks, and not in small measure because one of their players, Sterling Brown, was the victim of police brutality a couple of years ago and received an apology from the Milwaukee Police Department and an undisclosed financial settlement. So it hit home for the Milwaukee Bucks. It's in their state. And one of the Bucks players said, oh, you know, what happened to me a few years ago has happened to this, this man. And that led to a triggering, uh, a domino effect, if you will, of the NBA shutting down, baseball shutting down. The National Hockey League even didn't play. Um, Naomi Osaka, a tennis player, shut down the tournament in New York. And people may say, oh, it's sports has become too political, but it's a result of athletes now saying, we're not just here to entertain you. We have a voice. And when we see things happening in society that outrage us, we are not going to stay silent anymore. We don't have to stay silent anymore. Athletes increasingly understand that they are role models. And if they take a strong stand and speak out that people who may not watch the news, may not go to news websites or read newspapers or news magazines, they'll find out about what happened to Jacob Blake from NBA players because they didn't play or WNBA players who decided not to play. Athletes understand now that their own websites are a platform, their status as athletes who are going to be interviewed before and after games and quoted extensively, they are now not going to restrict themselves to just talking about themselves. They're going to look at what's going on in, in society. I think that's healthy. And I think people who are offended by that need to sort of get their head out of the out of the ground. I, I, I compare them to ostriches. They just think that <laughs> you should just entertain for me. Uh, John Thompson, the legendary Georgetown coach who died recently. I used to cover him when I covered college basketball for the New York Post. And he had an expression, you know, they want us to just throw sand on the floor and start dancing for them. That was a term he would use because he led that um, coach's boycott several years ago. And walk, he walked off before a game as a symbolic gesture because of the paucity of black head coaches in college basketball. Numbers are a little better today, but they were terrible then. Mm -hmm. So he knew how to use his platform as a prominent black college basketball coach who had won a national championship and sort of had a megaphone that other people didn't have. LeBron James and the rest of the NBA stars and WNBA stars, NFL stars, on and on, they have their own megaphones and they are increasingly 
learning how to use them to affect some positive changes. We're talking earlier about using stadiums and arenas as voting centers. That came from athletes advocating that. That didn't come from politicians. Oh, let's now open up our stadiums and arenas so to make it easier for people to vote. Politicians, especially the GOP, they weren't going to say that. It came from athletes making that an issue. And it, it's happening in a lot of arenas and stadiums across the country because of athletes using their platform and not being afraid to be political. And I think the important thing to remember is everyone's always been political. It's just, as you say, I think you nailed it. We just have better platforms. You know, before social media, you were just talking to your neighbor. And now on social media, you can share your voice with millions of people across the globe. And as you become a athlete, a superstar athlete, you do, you have a megaphone. And I think what a lot of people seem to forget is these athletes, they're people. They're people just like you and me. They have their opinions, you know, they have things that affect them and they want to be a voice for a more productive and impactful, positive change. And if they can use their platform to do that, then they're going to use that platform. Now you have that debate about, let's take LeBron James, the NBA created his platform. Yeah, that's true. And if you don't like how political the NBA has come has become, don't watch. You know, we talked about in our last conversation, you know, the, the impact of viewership, specifically for women's sports, but I do understand some people are like, you know what, I want to just get away from all the politics that are happening in the news, especially here in the US. I just want to watch sports. But those are people that, like you said perfectly, they're not just there to dance for your amusement. You know, they're not just there to shut up and dribble. They're actual people that have an actual impact in the community, oftentimes a lot larger than the person complaining that they shouldn't have that impact. I think things have always been political. It's just... I think we've kind of said it perfectly. It's just the platform has now become bigger and louder. And a lot more people are hearing what somebody like LeBron James has to say. Also, there's also a responsibility of athletes to make sure what they're sharing is truthful. And I know, you know, LeBron James, when it comes to, well, he's been very quiet on China because it affects his money. And I, I think that's when people who are against sports becoming too political, it's like, all right, if you're going to be political, don't just say things that only personally benefit you. Talk about things like China. And then it's important just to get the facts right. I know, you know, just to kind of correct uh, what you had mentioned, I think Brianna Taylor was, I think the evidence has proven that she was awake. Uh, we'll double check it for the corrections. I think just being factually, you know, as we talk about in this show, just being factually um, up to date on what's happening. And I know with the Jacob Blake thing, a lot of people thought he died, but he didn't die. If If athletes are going to be political, making sure that... They're political for the right reasons, not just to be this new woke culture where, you know, you're just a woke athlete who is doing things because it looks good. Uh, the optics look good, but you actually care. And a lot of these people do care. You know, LeBron James made a school in his hometown because he cares about those kids having a good education. To kind of hammer home the point, these are people, these athletes are people who have real lives. They're not just people you see when you turn on the TV. They have real lives. They have real family members and they're a real part of the community. I think that's the thing that often doesn't get shown as much as it should. Athletes do a lot in the community. Almost all of them have some sort of charity that they do work for. Like I said, they're doing a lot more work to help the community, help people who don't have as much privilege than somebody who's complaining that the NBA has Black Lives Matter on the court. Yeah, and I, I thought it was powerful again that 
Sterling Brown read the statement for the Milwaukee Bucks as the, mm-hmm. his teammates were gathered around him to explain why we are not playing tonight. Because a couple of years ago, Sterling Brown was racially profiled, black man driving an expensive car. I write about in my book, Different Strokes, how that happened to James Blake when he signed his first big money contract with Nike and became a tennis pro. Here's a black man with dreadlocks at the time behind the wheel of an expensive car, and he was pulled over and harassed for that reason. Briefly about myself, I covered the Carolina Hurricanes of the NHL for for two seasons. I I was based in Raleigh. I have to drive to Greensboro because the new arena had not been built yet. So often after midnight, I'm on I-40 driving from Greensboro to Raleigh. I got pulled over five times. I wasn't speeding. I was very conscious not to speed because I knew where I was. But I still got pulled over five times. And one of them ordered me to open my glove compartment. I said, I don't have to open my glove. He said, you're going to open your glove compartment. That's the only time I've ever. Well, one of only two times I've had a gun pointed at me and I opened the glove compartment. And if he had been inclined to plant some drugs on me, he would have got away with it. If he had shot me and then written up some sort of police report, he would have got away with it. So when I see these stories, I have a, a flashback at times to you know, how easy it is to be victimized, how easy it is for any black woman to suffer the fate of of Breonna Taylor, who did absolutely nothing wrong in her Mm -hmm. life, did plenty of things right, had dreams of becoming a nurse. She was an EMT, well-liked by her colleagues and well-liked in her community. And it's almost eerie to see that she posted earlier this year, 2020 is going to be my best year. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and then this happens to her. It's outrageous. And I'm glad so many athletes and people who are not athletes are sufficiently outraged by this to to say, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to attend protest rallies or I'm going to use my platform if I have a national platform to speak out against it. And if people don't like it, like the certain Fox News host who told LeBron, <laughs> first she said, shut up and dribble. And then could you come on my show to discuss it? She knows what LeBron would bring if he were if he had been duped into going on her show, what well, her ratings would have been. So, of course, LeBron told her to get lost. Instead, turned it into a multi-part special for Showtime called Shut Up and Dribble about black <laughs> activism in sports. So, yeah. well played once again, LeBron. Yeah, and I think you can kind of harken back to, say, someone like Colin Kaepernick. There's this idea that protests are bad, but protests are the very definition of patriotic. You know, if we're talking about standing for the flag, you know, I don't think a lot of people knew that Colin Kaepernick would first started by sitting on the bench. And then he talked to a teammate who was a Green Beret. And he said, what ways can I be respectful to the troops? Well, and the Green Beret said, how about kneeling? And then that's where the kneeling came from. Protesting means that you love your country enough to try and fix it. But I think where a lot of people get into is they get kind of into a nationalism type view where my country's great just the way it is. Nothing needs to change. With the uh, Breonna Taylor thing, Specifically, the law found that these police officers, besides endangering the one police officer endangering uh, a neighboring building, they did nothing wrong. Technically, legally, that's the truth. But the fact that an innocent person died because of how the law is set up, that means the law needs to change. Innocent people shouldn't be dying legally. I can still respect the flag. I can still respect, you know, the nation I, I'm in, the U.S., but I want the nation to be better. I want you to not be fearful, you know, driving down a highway late at night. It's our country, too. We don't have to leave just because you disagree with us. I go back to the 1968 Mexico City Olympics that there was an athlete's boycott. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Lou Alcindor, did not go. He would have been the star of the basketball team. He sat it out. But two track and field stars, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, did go. 
And when they won medals in the 200 meter dash, they took it upon themselves to wear one black glove each. And during the playing of the of the national anthem, they raised their fists. And for that, they were stripped of their medals, sent home the next day and ostracized in this country and had trouble getting work for a long time. That was 1968. So we're talking about um, 52 years ago. They didn't have the same platform. They didn't have the same sense of unity that athletes have today. I'm proud of these athletes. They're using it for the right means. Um, LeBron is not the only one. We keep bringing him up because he's so prominent. But there are so many athletes who are saying the people who made the decisions to not indict officers for murder in the case of Breonna Taylor, we're talking about elected officials. So if you vote, if you stop saying voting doesn't matter, but if you realize that you have the power to vote and you vote out people who make decisions that are offensive to you, that are you know against the best interests of, of our of our society, you have the power to vote them out. So I'm I'm glad that the voter registration project was started by athletes. And that is what has persuaded so many of the sports franchises to open their stadiums and arenas on election day to make it easier for people to vote. Because we've seen scenes of people standing in line in Wisconsin for seven hours during the pandemic, during the winter, to cast votes in a particular race. It happened recently in in Georgia, happened recently in Texas. No one should have to stand in line for six or seven hours to cast a vote. I'm proud of athletes for, for taking this stand. It would have been done generations earlier if athletes had the platforms. You know, Derek Jeter started the Players' Tribune for a reason. He didn't like people like me asking him questions after games. <laughs> he wanted to be able to control the narrative. Mm-hmm. Athletes have their own websites and they make use of the opportunity after games to say, as uh, a WNBA WNBA team did recently, I don't want to talk about the game. I want to talk about Breonna Taylor. That was the only subject they took questions on. So the articles were about the Breonna Taylor case. And it's raising the consciousness of people who don't necessarily watch the news or visit news websites. Yeah. And I mean, no offense to yourself, uh, Cecil, but yeah, journalists, TV stations, they've been making money off of athletes and what athletes are doing. And now athletes are saying, well, now there's platforms where I can create my own type of business where it's, you know, the players to be like Derek Jeter. I can talk about what I want to talk about and get out there. And you know what? And some athletes, they don't want to talk about things. And that's all right, too. You know, we last episode, we talked about Michael Jordan saying, you know, Republicans wear sneakers, too. That's fine, too. You know, if you want to say something, say something. If you don't, you don't. And I think we need to do better as, you know, fans on respecting that decision, respecting the decision that these athletes are people just like you and me they may look better and they may be much more physical than us and you know actually be able to dunk but there's still people like us that have opinions and they're affected by cases like brianna taylor or you know george floyd and when people say oh lebron should talk about other issues yeah he could certainly talk about what's going on in china but when the houston rockets general manager spoke out against it China said, we're not going to show any more NBA games. That cost the league a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I'm not excusing athletes (laughs) for not wanting to talk about, but that's why they don't want to talk about China. The Houston Rockets GM stuck his neck out and cost the league probably billions. I would imagine. Yeah, a lot of money. And and that is one of the tough things. It's like, well, is somebody like LeBron James going to speak out about China and potentially lose a lot, a lot of money? Obviously, that's more money than we would ever, you know, be able to (laughs) comprehend. 
but it's still a part of his lifestyle. Would I say something like, say, if I got on a, you know, a network, would I say something negative about that network? I probably would because I want to be honest. But <laughs> I also have to take in consideration that that affects my rent. That affects being able to pay for my rent, being able to put food on my table, being able to support a family, friends. Those are things you also have to think about. I, I commend the athletes that take a step and say, I don't really care about the money. I care about the social causes that need to change. Those are the athletes that I'm like, yes, these are the people we should get behind. But I'm also understandable about people like um, LeBron James specifically, you know, obviously we've been talking about him because everyone knows about him that are fearful of talking about China because that could affect, you know, even though he has tons of money, that still affects being able to put food on the table and put a roof over his kid's head. Well, he has the Success Academy in Akron, Ohio, which mm-hmm. we talked about. I'm sure LeBron wants to create more schools like that yes. because I mean, Serena Williams has created schools for girls in African countries and also Jamaica in the Caribbean. The more money she's able to take in, the more her influence grows and she can do positive things like that. So if you want Serena to say, speak out about how Nike exploits people in Vietnam, well, she's a Nike athlete. She's not going to do that. And she's made a business decision not to do that. LeBron has made a business decision, I believe, not to speak out about the situation in China because he saw what happened after the Houston Rockets general manager spoke out. They're not going to get a 100% approval rating from us. Well, that rating is high enough. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Is the good I'm doing outweighing the bad? Exactly. And in, in the case of the NBA and the WNBA, and I always want to mention the WNBA because they were the first to you know, wear the hoodies after Trayvon Martin was killed by the, the toy cop in Florida, was not even a police officer, just someone you know thought he was a big man because he had a gun. And a self-appointed neighborhood watchman where Trayvon, armed with a bottle of iced tea and a bag of Skittles, was on his way to visit his father. The WNBA was the first league to raise our consciousness about that issue. In many instances, there's a gender dynamic at work here. The the NBA often will get credit for certain acts of social activism that actually began with the women's NBA. Mm-hmm. And that, that happens to be one of them. The way the WNBA players on, I believe it was the Washington team, Mystics, they all came out wearing t- shirts with seven bullet holes in the back, symbolic of what happened to Jacob Blake. So there's a lot of social activism that doesn't offend me in the least. I'm, I applaud it. And I think people should be open-minded enough to um, listen. If you want to have a conversation about what Colin Kaepernick did and why he did it, rather than cut him off, listen to what he has to say. You know, on that point, Adam, there's a certain amount of uh, what I call woke fakery by sports leagues, like the (laughs) NFL. Roger Goodell is saying, we should have listened to Cap earlier. Well, why didn't you? You were so worried about Trump going on a 3 a.m. tweet storm criticizing the NFL that you didn't want to listen to what he was saying. You allowed this president to say that Colin Kaepernick is not protesting abusive police and systemic racism. No, he's against the military. He's against the flag. He's against America. You knew that wasn't true because Kaepernick was giving interviews after games explaining exactly why he was taking a knee. But no one has a bigger megaphone in this country than the president. And unfortunately, it's not always being used. Well, it's not being used for good. And in that instance, it was not used for good because he hijacked a very serious issue and turned public sentiment against a player who was trying to raise our consciousness about social problems. Here we are now in 2020 and 
NFL quarterbacks go down every week and Colin Kaepernick still has not received a real tryout. There was a fake one last year, hastily arranged on a Saturday. If you're really into football, you know that the day for tryouts is Tuesday. That's the player's day off. That's when the decision makers of a team can be there to watch you. You don't do it on a Saturday and give the guy two weeks to respond and then ask him, oh, Colin, we want you to sign a waiver pledging that you will not sue us again. You don't do that if you're serious about giving someone a tryout. You know, these are all issues that athletes can raise because not enough members of the media are raising them. A lot of them have just moved on. And too many of my colleagues are just interested in covering who won and who lost, not the larger societal issues that athletes are trying to to raise or they are raising, but they're not always getting the, the traction that they should. Colin Kaepernick was essentially hung out to dry. At the end of the day, sports are sports. You know, if you get mad that the NBA put Black Lives Matter on the court. There's 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 bigger issues that you should be thinking about than just what's on a court. I know, you know, talking about kind of fake wokeness, the NFL playing the uh, Black National Anthem only the first week of the season and not even on TV. I, I was just reading that um, in 2015, the military was paying $53 million a year for military tributes during sporting events. So the NFL doesn't really care too much about the military, but they're being paid to. I think the NBA is on the cusp of, or one of the better leagues at fighting for social equality and the league actually doing something about it rather than just the players. You know, obviously the NBA is a majority black league yes. also because, you know, NBA is much smaller team. So a few more players are stars rather than a football team where it's maybe just a skill player. But to see these players put, you know, the money on the line and say, hey, I want to talk about things that matter rather than just this game. I think that's important and it's commendable. And, you know, if people don't like where the NBA is going, it's just, you know, maybe it's time to watch something else. I agree. And and since the restart, an inordinate number of NBA playoff games were played on weekday afternoons. Yes, that's a good point. So it skewers the ratings. Last year, all those games were played at night in prime time in their markets. So I'm, I'm here in New York. And before the Brooklyn Nets were eliminated from the bubble, they were playing these these playoff games one o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, not in prime time. So the ratings are going to be lower. You can take any sport that is usually a primetime sport and start playing on weekday afternoons. The ratings will be lower. From what I see, the ratings for the NBA as they get close to their finals are healthy. Yeah, they're going back up. Yeah, because people want to see, um, will LeBron become one of the few players to win a, a championship on three different teams? The What the Miami Heat are doing, uh, the Celtics, people are, the Denver Nuggets, people are... Uh, more interested now than they, than they were before. And it's prime time. And it's prime time. All these games are in prime time. Part of the reason I think ratings may be going down is that we've never had this quite this convergence before where, let's say, the four major sports are going on at the same time. Under normal circumstances, we wouldn't have any NBA in late September. We wouldn't have any NHL in late September. There's only so <laughs> much you can watch. Basically, cut cable, Cecil. That's the that's that's our final word, uh, Cecil. Once again, thank you to uh, thank you for a wonderful conversation. You are always more than welcome back. Thank you for uh, a second time taking time out of your day to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Once again, listeners, if you'd like to support and connect with Cecil, you can do so by heading to his website www.cecilharrisbooks.com once again that's www.cecilharrisbooks.com or by following him on twitter
Twitter at Cecil H. Author. You can also now uh, that we're almost done with our second conversation, finish the rest of this episode, but revisit our uh, our first conversation, The Legacy of Athea Gibson. And of course, as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Cecil is now your second time here. You know what happens. I'm going to hand over the show to you to close out the show however you seem fit. Cecil, the floor is yours. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for inviting me again. I'm going to start with a, a brief story that it ticks me off. I hope other people will think about this seriously as well. But the Tennis Hall of Fame is trying to push through the inductions of the seven women who joined Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals as the first members of the Women's Tennis Association 50 years ago. They've been branded the original nine. Tennis Channel has been doing stories on them every day. The original nine will appear on the 2021 Hall of Fame ballot as contributors. Now, of the nine, only two were great players, Billie Jean King and Rosie Casals. They're already in the Hall of Fame. But because this is the 50th anniversary of the WTA, someone in the tennis establishment came up with the idea, let's enshrine all nine. Well, the Tennis Hall of Fame is supposed to be for the greats, not just for, you know, two great players and seven other women who were available. Yeah, who just happened to be women at that time. They just happened to be women who, oh, yeah, I have time, you know, my middle class, upper middle class lifestyle. I've got time to travel around the country and play matches that are going to be won by Billie Jean or Rosie. But I I can do it. There's a shot 50 years ago of nine women in their 20s holding up symbolic checks for one dollar. That's what the contract called for. And recently, that shot was recreated with nine women in their 70s holding up the symbolic checks for $1. So I'm sure the Tennis Hall of Fame wants that photo opportunity at the induction ceremony next year of these women. But only two of them are Hall of Famers on merit. The other seven were just available. Tennis continues to ignore the great black players who came before Althea Gibson's major tennis debut in 1950. Names that I hope people will Google and and learn about. Margaret Peters, Romania Peters, Aura Washington, Reginald Weir, Robert Ryland, great black players who didn't get a chance to play in their prime or they didn't, didn't get a chance to play major tennis in their prime or didn't get a chance to play at all because of racism. They're not in the Hall of Fame. No one's speaking up for them. I'm trying to speak up for them. But because many of them are are deceased and don't have strong advocates, the chances of them getting into the Hall of Fame are slim. But they should certainly go ahead of, you know, seven women who are not great players. They were just available. No, I appreciate, you know, you using your platform to talk about those women. And I appreciate being able to hopefully get their names out to more people through through my platform. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Uh, but until next time, eventually we'll get that conversation to talk about uh, paying college athletes. Maybe next time. <laughs> yes, uh, but until next time, listeners, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode. What a guest. What a time. Thank you once again to Cecil for coming back for another round to talk about those bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support Cecil's charity of choice, services for the underserved. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee, or sharing their mission with another person around the water cooler. Wherever those pesky water coolers may be. They're not they're not a popular thing anymore, apparently. But anyways. To the corrections. During the guest introduction portion of the episode, the Northwestern QB Cecil had mentioned was Kane Coulter, who was unable to continue on a pre-med track 
because of the time schedule needed to be a full-time student athlete. And during the North Carolina scandal, the football coach was Butch Davis and the athletic director was Dick Badur. And in the second story discussing the NBA's rating decline, as for the facts for the death of Breonna Taylor, PolitiFact, which is a very, very reliable source. I go to them a lot to fact check, especially during the uh, election to fact check what's being said because I trust them and I will pass that source along to you. Uh, But they did a fact check of the entire situation that was checked by Noah Kim and Miriam Valverde. According to interviews with Kenneth Walker, Taylor's boyfriend, The two of them were in bed at 12.40 p.m. when they heard banging at the door. Walker, fearing it was Taylor's ex-boyfriend, grabs his legally registered gun for protection because Kentucky does have a stand-your-ground law. Uh, So then both of them headed towards the door, and Walker fired when police busted through the door. Obviously, Walker did not know there were police, and the police fired back, which ended in the death of Breonna Taylor. As I say in the episode, technically, everything that happened that night was legal. But just because something is illegal doesn't mean it's right. Slavery? It was legal once. (laughs) An innocent woman ended up dead. Laws need to change. The judge who quickly signed a warrant without truly processing the facts of the situation needs to be held accountable. Honestly, I think the judge needs to be held more accountable than the police officers. I don't know, just, just my thoughts on it. Just my thoughts. And then our final correction of the day, as mentioned in the introduction, LeBron James came away with his fourth championship, three of those with three different teams, but he was not the first to do so. That honor goes to John Sally, who was recognized as the first to complete the feat with the Pistons, Bulls, and Lakers. I think he completed that feat in 99 with that Lakers, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant superstar squad. All right, Water Coolers, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Cecil for calling into the studio uh, for a second appearance. And talking once again about some of the strangest and most weird news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your corrections. That's your episode. So get out of here. Just, just this get is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.